Okay, so if you could open up your Bible to the sixth chapter of Judges, that's where we're going to be. We're continuing this narrative that we were in now, it was a little bit over a month ago, uh, this account with the judge Gideon. The Holy Spirit, in his wisdom, decided to share a lot of specifics with Gideon's account. He, didn't, he doesn't do that with every judge, right? Uh, remember Shamgar, we had literally like one verse for Shamgar. Uh, but Gideon, he's, his account lasts three chapters. And so we're still considering the account of Gideon's story. And really, and what, what we're looking at right now is pretty much like the prequel to his being used as the deliverer, to him being used as the judge. We're a little bit more halfway through chapter 6, and we still haven't got to the point of Gideon delivering Israel and bringing about the time of peace and rest that we usually see with the judge's cycle. The Lord has things to teach us before we get there. Now, so far in Gideon's account, we've seen that God has brought the Midianites against Israel in a, various, in a very serious manner. Do you remember that? How the Midianites would come against Israel and they would pretty much utterly wipe them out. They would cause them to leave and go flee out into the mountains. And they did that every year for seven years straight. We, you think 2020 is bad. The Israelites, under the oppression of the Midianites, had seven years of worse than what 2020 is for us. They had to flee the mountains. You know, they abandoned everything that they had, all their worldly possessions every year. And eventually they cry out to the Lord, but their reasoning was suspect. It wasn't brokenness over their sin. Remember, it was, it was over the result that their sin had brought them. They weren't, they weren't repentant of their sin when they were crying out. They were, they were sorry about the punishment they were getting rather than being brokenhearted over the sin that they had. But God acts in grace towards them. Grace precedes their repentance. Grace that will lead them to commit acts of repentance. And so God sends them a prophet to point out their sin. But even then, they don't respond to it with godly sorrow. And then the story focuses in on Gideon. And the angel of the Lord, he comes, he reveals himself. The pre-incarnate son of God goes to Gideon and reveals to Gideon that the plan is to use him to be the next judge in Israel. And at that point, if you remember, a great fear came over Gideon and he realized that he had seen the Lord, but the Lord ends up giving him peace. And that pretty much catches us up to where we were. That's the, the Twitter edition. It's really short, of course, but that's where we, that's where we are. Um, we're going to pick it back up now at verse 25. So just three verses in view for us. So let's read the word of the Lord and then we will pray after that. So the, the reading of God's holy and inspired word, beginning at verse 25. It says, That night the Lord said to him, Take your father's bull and the second bull, seven years old, and pull down the altar of Baal that your father has, and cut down the Asherah that is beside it, and build an altar to the Lord your God on the top of the stronghold here, with stones laid in due order. Then take the second bull and offer it as a burnt offering with the wood of the Asherah that you shall cut down. So Gideon took ten men of his servants and did as the Lord had told him. But because he was too afraid of his family and the men of the town to do it by day, he did it by night. That ends the reading of God's holy, sufficient, and inspired word. May he apply it to our hearts. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we praise you and thank you for your word and for the lessons that you teach us in it. For most of all, the lesson of Christ. And we pray that you would help us to, to know your gospel clearly through tonight and to trust in it and it alone. Help us to be 
focused. When there are, we know that there are many things that distract us during our days, Lord, but help us for this short time to be intent on listening so that we might glorify you and honor you. In your name we pray. Amen. Okay, so it appears that there's still something that needs to happen before Israel can have victory over the Midianites. Gideon was not following the Lord, and he didn't recognize his presence at first. He was just doing what was right in his own mind. And now the Lord is going to require of him obedience, obedience that he already owed the Lord anyway. And that's something that we can learn for ourselves as well, of course. We all owe God obedience, regardless of what we think. Uh, he is God. Even if you don't, even if there are people who don't believe in God, in a very real sense, in a true sense, they owe God obedience because God is the Creator. We're not our own masters, and our, even though our sin teaches us that we are. But make no mistake here, God has always, in His law, required obedience from Gideon. He requires obedience from all peoples in all places and at all times, and Gideon was especially held to a high standard because God's law was revealed to the nation of Israel, which Gideon, of course, belonged to. Gideon knew of these things. If you remember from the text that we looked at last time, and I know that was a while ago now, uh, he, had, he, he had heard about God's wonderful deeds and how he brought them out of Egypt. That was back in verse 13. Certainly then, if he, if he knew about Egypt and how God brought them from that, he would know that when they got out of Egypt, they landed at Mount Sinai, and there God gave them the, the Ten Words, the Ten Commandments, and then the rest of the laws as well, too. He would have known how the mountain shook with thunder and with um, peals of lightning. He would have known that the law was given there. And we know all these stories as well by virtue of being born in America, by virtue of having some of us, many of us in this room, having uh, parents that were believers. So we know these stories. But as America becomes more and more secular, and secular in this context, I mean either anti or just simply ignorant of Christianity, it might not be the case that people are familiar with the stories of the Bible. But even then, if a person doesn't know about these stories, if a person doesn't know about Moses and Egypt and the Exodus, they are still accountable to obeying God's law. The people are not off the hook. Even if a person has never formally been told what God requires and what obedience looks like, and it doesn't mean that you're free from the obligation of it. Okay, so if you have a Bible, you could turn with me to Romans chapter 2 in the New Testament. It is the sixth book in the New Testament, so when you get to Acts, just one more book over. Romans chapter 2. Now before we read this passage, I want to clarify something first. Um, we need to understand the context of the, the, this letter to the church in Rome. The, in these early chapters here, the Apostle Paul is establishing the problem of sin, and the reward of righteousness, okay? He's establishing the problem of sin and the reward of righteousness. And when he gets to chapter 2 here, there are times at which it sounds as if he's saying that if you keep the law, then you will be saved, then you will be redeemed, then you will, then you will have, you'll be counted as righteous. You'll be rewarded for your righteousness. But that's not in fact what Paul's actually saying. He's building a case to say that people can't do this. 
that people can't actually keep the law themselves. They can't be right in God's, stand, in God's eyes. They can't be just before God by keeping the law themselves. They're not able to do it. The law teaches that if they, if they could do that, they would be righteous, but they can't because of sin. So he's establishing here in these early chapters the goodness of the law and at the same time showing the demands of the law while also building up to the case that no one can keep it. But he doesn't get to that result until later on in the, in the letter. So let's take a look at this text in Romans to see that obedience is due to God by all people regardless if you've never heard the law or not. So we'll begin at verse 6. He said in chapter 2, he will render to each one according to his works. Okay, he, in other words, he will give to each one according to what he does, obeys or disobeys. To those who by patience, well-doing, seek for glory and honor and immortality, he will give eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury. There will be tribulation and distress for every human being who does evil, the Jew first and also the Greek, but glory and honor and peace for everyone who does good, the Jew first and also the Greek, for God shows no partiality. For all who have sinned without the law will also perish without the law. Okay, so in other words, if you've never been given the law, if you sin without it, you will also still perish. And all who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. For it is not the hearers of the law who are righteous before God, but the doers of the law who will be justified. For when Gentiles, who do not have the law, by nature do what the law requires, they are a law to themselves, even though they do not have the law. So, right, so God gave the law to Israel, but not to the Gentiles. Gentiles were never received it formally. They didn't know it. They didn't hear about it until a Jewish person would tell them about it. So they didn't have the law. But then he says in verse 15, They show that the work of the law is written on their hearts, while their conscience also bears witness, and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them. On that day, when according to my gospel, God judges the secrets of men by Christ Jesus. So you see what he's saying here is that obedience is due unto God, whether you have been given the law or not. Even if you've never heard the Ten Commandments before, even if you're here tonight and you've never heard the Ten Commandments before, God holds you responsible to them. You're made in God's image. Every person that is alive is an image bearer of God. Uh, that means that we have a system of morals written upon our souls, upon our nature as people. And so people instinctively know the Ten Commandments but not specifically. They have it, it's, the work of them is written upon their conscience. We know the base requirements of the law, but the more a person indulges their sin, the more and more your conscience isn't bothered by disobedience to the law. So it might have not been clear from the first read-through of our passage, but in, tonight back in, so let's think now back to Judges chapter 6. It might have not been clear from that first read-through, but our, our judge in view, Gideon, is in violation of the first commandment. Does anybody know what the first commandment is? Have no other gods before me. Have no other gods. That's right. You sh um, and truly, what the commandment actually forbids, the first commandment, is that you should not recognize any other gods at all. You can't have a god 
and then that worship that you worship alongside worshiping Yahweh. Remember what Jesus says in Matthew 6, right? A person can't serve two masters, and God also does not share his glory with another. So, and there is no other gods than God, right? Yet, this is what's happening here in Judges chapter 6. So, let's look at what we have. We read that Gideon's family are Baal worshippers, or Baal worshippers. You can say that either way. Apparently, they're prominent ones as well. They have an altar to Baal and to Asherah that the city that they lived in would come and use and would leave sacrifices at. Baal and Asherah are basically counterpart, counterpart gods that were worshipped in Canaan upon the promise of fertility and blessing. So in other words, if you wanted a family, family blessings, your family to grow, if you wanted uh, productivity in your life or whatever your job, you would go and you know, pray to Baal and to Asherah and leave offerings there for these idols. Now, it is, as I said, Gideon was told about the mighty deeds of Yahweh by his father. He knew of them. We went over that last time. But it's not until now that we see that they are guilty of what's called syncretism. Syncretism is when you blend whatever is popular in the culture with the true faith. Uh, the Roman Catholic Church did this frequently in Southern America, for example, and there are, there are many false converts there now because of that. I mean, Roman Catholicism is a bad starting place from the gate, but when you mix the Roman Catholic teaching with whatever animism and spiritism religions were already there, you get this blend of Roman Catholicism and whatever else was already there. And that's the same thing that's happened here in Israel. They were supposed to push out the Canaanites and instead, what they've done is they've just intermingled with them at this point. And Gideon and his family are practically Baal worshippers. They didn't see God as sufficient or enough. And so they set up these shrines to false gods of the Canaanites. They acknowledge Yahweh still, but not as enough. And really, if that's what we're going to do, then we're really not acknowledging Yahweh at all. And they're not acknowledging really God at all. And so remember, this is the real problem that Israel has. Their true problem isn't the Midianites, right? That, that's what they think their problem is. They think their problem is the Midianites coming against them. But their real problem is that they're in sin and that they are giving their worship to an idol rather than trusting in their sovereign God who has covenanted with them and promised them to, to bless them and to bring the Messiah through them. You remember what the prophet said to the people before the angel of the Lord approached Gideon? He leaves them with this last sentence without pronouncing judgment, but he tells them of their problem. This is verse 10. He says, he says, And I said to you, I am the Lord your God. You shall not fear the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell, but you have not obeyed my voice. So you see, rather than fearing the Lord, which, mind you, is the beginning of all wisdom, there was a fear of the Canaanite gods, this Amorite, these Amorite gods, which is then what? If the Fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. To fear a false god is foolish. It's a fear that caused them to seek their help as if God wasn't sufficient. And now as an aside here, before I make the point as to why Gideon is having to do what he's having to do now, we also, as Christians living in 2020, need to be aware of idols in our own lives. Granted, for the vast majority of us, we won't have the temptation of worshiping a false deity for blessing. But even for us who are Christians today, we need to be aware of our tendency to be synchronistic as well. For example, 
Um, and if you were at this conference the past uh, few weeks uh, before we did our Q&A last week, there are a lot of Christians going around now talking about supporting a BLM, the Black Lives Matters movement. It's not to say that black lives don't matter. Of course they do. All lives matter. But this Black Lives Matter movement is an, a religious movement. It has dogmas. It, ha it teaches a way of being satisfied, a way of having joy. It, it replaces what is true of Christianity. And those who are caught up in it take their eyes off of Christ in some way or another, teaching people to find joy or disgrace in their ethnicity rather than being satisfied in Christ. And so there are countless other ways in which people might create idols as well. Idols of comfort, idols of peace, idols of happiness. And you need to dress a certain way. You need to have so many likes on your social media accounts. You need to be in this crowd or that crowd. Not that, not that those things are bad in and of themselves, right? A lot of, most things in life, especially for us as Christians, all, you know, all things are clean in a sense. We can enjoy things in so much as they're not inherently sinful. But there is a danger in many of these things for us to make an idol out of them. And we need to be aware of our tendency to let these sorts of things eclipse our desire and our sufficiency in the Lord. Because once we start drawing like, oh, I feel satisfied because I've got this, this status or whatever it is, then we're, we're at that threshold of, of an idol having taken the place of where God should be in our life. And, you know, if Christ, if knowing Christ and Him crucified is not the most important thing in your life, which instructs every other area, if that's not the case, then you need to be aware of that and repent and ask God for forgiveness and for grace to destroy those idols in your life. But this is what's happening here with Gideon. Before he is able to represent the Lord as the judge, it needs to be clear that Yahweh is God and God alone. And following God, which Gideon hasn't been doing up to this point, which Israel hasn't been doing up to this point, following God means the death of our old ways. It means dying to ourselves. Think about what that means in your own life. But here for Gideon, it means doing away with Baal and Asherah. Now it's interesting because God wastes no time here. Verse 25 begins by saying that night. Well, what night? The same night that the angel of the Lord approached Gideon. Gideon is going to get to work right away. And he has a demand for Gideon. The question is, is, will Gideon be obedient? That's the question. That's the question for us all in some way or another. Granted, none of us will ever have the specific task like Gideon has right now. We aren't commanded to burn down the buildings of other religions, of course. That was a specific event, or this is a specific event within the Old Covenant. And obedience to the Lord matters for us as well. But, and not for us in the sense of our salvation, or even for Gideon in that sense, but for how we live. And we don't have time to get into all the details in which a Christian might be obedient, but what I'm thinking of generally, what I'm thinking of in, in general umbrella terms for us tonight, is our desire to love God and love neighbor. Where, where do we have to be obedient in our, in our desire to love God and love neighbor? That's first. The law of God gets into the details of loving God and loving neighbor, right? The, the Ten Commandments are, representative, are represented by that short phrase, love God and love neighbor. But it might also simply be described as faithfulness in, as in our part. You know, willingness to repent of our sin when we're aware of it. 
That's obedience. Uh, Those things sum up obedience for us. Obedience to the Lord can even reveal the our, our heart. John 14, 15 says, If you love me, this is Jesus talking, if you love me, keep my commandments. And further, his commandments aren't burdensome to those who love him. Remember what Jesus says in Matthew 11? He says, My yoke is easy and my burden is light. Yeah, my burden is light. So for the one who loves God, being obedient, it's not easy to be obedient, but it is something that we want to do. So what does Gideon need to do? He needs to get two bulls, and there's some translational difficulty here. Some translations say it should only say one bull, but whatever. Let's take it for what it says here in the English. And so he's got to take these two bulls and pull down the altar of Baal and then cut down the Asherah idol. And then with wood from that idol, he's going to sacrifice the bull using the fire that he made from that wood. Yeah. Who's Asherah? Asherah is like the female counterpart to Baal. So it was like a, a, a team of false deities that the Canaanites, the Amorites specifically, in our passage would go. And th- th- this Baal was actually the big, one of the bigger false gods in the area. Biggest. Maybe the biggest. That was very Trump. <laughs> so he needs to get these two bulls and he's going to take, he's going to knock down the one and then he's going to cut down the Asherah one and then from the wood from the Asherah one, he's going to make a fire and sacrifice the bull there at that point. And this is a savage move on God's part. I hope you see that. God is mocking the Canaanite gods who also happen to be Gideon's family gods. This is what Yahweh thinks of them. They're good for the fire. That's his thought about Asherah and Baal. They're good to be used as the fuel for the burnt offering that will honor and glorify the true God. And that's it. There's a big irony here, isn't there? What can Baal and Asherah do about it? They can't do anything about it. And they're not bothered by it, and that gets teased out in the next part of the text, which we'll get into next week. But if they were real, wouldn't this be a big offense? Now, mind you, this is one of the reasons that God gives us the second commandment and forbids us from making pictures and statues of him. It prevents people from offending the true God in this way. But the irony goes further here. To make an altar for Baal and Asherah, an idol, you need to take stuff from Yahweh's creation to do it. Now, the prophet Isaiah mocks all idols and the makers of them in the 44th chapter of his book. The, the, whole, the whole chapter just goes into detail about it. We'll just read a short piece of it here. Uh, he says a lot, but let me just give you a few verses that capture the force of his argument. So this is Isaiah 44, 14 through 17, and he's speaking of the person who makes false idols. So he says, He cuts down cedars, Or he chooses a cypress tree or an oak and lets it grow strong among the trees of the forest. He plants a cedar and rain nourishes in it. Or rain nourishes it. Who provides the rain? God. God does. Yahweh does. Then it becomes fuel for a man. He takes part of it and it warms himself. He kindles a fire and bakes bread and he makes a god and worships it. And he makes it an idol and falls down before it. Half of it he burns in the fire. Over the half he eats his meat. He roasts it and is satisfied. Also, he warms himself and says, Aha, I am warm. I have seen the fire. Where does fire come from? From God's creation, right? And the rest of it he makes into a god, his idol. And he falls down to it and worships it. He prays to it and says, Deliver me, for you are my God. 
So Isaiah here, even under the inspiration of the Spirit, might rival Sam or Steve with trolling. Uh, he is he's letting them have it, right? It's, he's mocking them openly for their false worship. So Yahweh is the God who talks. He is the living God, the only God. And since Gideon is now going to be representing him and God's people, he has to get rid of these false idols in his life. The Lord your God is holy. He's not going to be tainted and associated with Baal. So he offers clear instruction to Gideon as to what he must do. And will Gideon be obedient? Well, it's complex for two reasons. Number one, the people worship these false gods. It's not going to make Gideon popular to do this. It's not going to cause him to be a man of the community if he, do, when he, if he does this, when he does this. It's going to cost him friends, most likely. It will cost him his safety, most likely. He's aware of these things, and as we see next time, it, it happens. Uh, Gideon is not praised by man for his obedience. And then secondly, these are his father's statues. These aren't a stranger's statues. It's not the property of the government or some religious body. They belong to his dad. And God tells us that we're to honor our father and our mother. And this action of Gideon, this command from the Lord, seems to fly in the face of that command. Gideon's being asked to clean house. And that entails him doing something that would seem to be contrary to something that he should already know. So let me set up a hypothetical situation for you guys. Say your parents have an idol. Say that maybe they're part of a religion that sets up actual little statues in what they call a prayer cabinet or a prayer corner or something like that. Is it your duty as a Christian to destroy it? Yeah, Adam's saying burn it up here. (laughs) Or maybe it's clear that your dad or your your mom idolizes entertainment or something like that. And so they they neglect their responsibilities and so they watch a lot of TV. So should you destroy the TV? If they give too much time to a hobby, maybe they like cars. Maybe they're always spending time in the garage building cars. Burn their cars. Should you destroy it? Would you be like Gideon? Would you be like Gideon in doing so? The answer to all three of those examples is no. You would not be like Gideon. Even though the actions of your parents are wrong, you don't have the right to do what Gideon does. You'd be in violation of the fifth commandment. But Gideon isn't actually violating the fifth commandment here. And let me explain why. And I, I really would like for you guys to pay attention here because the, the, the thing that is happening here, I want you to get this. Because understanding why Gideon is not in the wrong here and why God isn't asking him to violate his own law to, to do this is knowing the reason will help you when people try to impose something on you and trap you using some law in the Old Testament. And people are going to eventually try to do that to you at some point in your Christian life. If you're vocal about being a Christian, at least, people are going to say, well, what about this? And they'll bring up some Old Testament laws to why, you know, that matters or not. They'll bring up the holiness code and then use that to try to downplay biblical responsibility, like with homosexuality or something. Holiness Holiness code, just the laws of holiness that Israel had. So, the Bible must be dealt with in its specific context always. You can get out of that context, but you can't neglect it. So, here is the reason as to why Gideon wasn't breaking the fifth commandment and why we would be today if we did something like this to our parents. This command from God is given to Gideon within the context of the Old Covenant. 
Now, granted, the moral law is perpetual. That means it continues on and never comes to an end. The Ten Commandments are, are always the rule of righteousness for Christians, for, for believers, for people, everywhere in every age. But they're always in operation. Even now that the Old Covenant is over, the moral law, the Ten Commandments, and all that they entail are still binding for us, and we covered this earlier. But... Israel, within the Old Covenant, had a special relationship to the moral law and the judicial law in which they, if they failed, or when they failed to keep it, it brought upon them covenant curses. And so everyone in Israel was part of this covenant, the Old Covenant, right? The old, if you, we don't have time to go into these. We've talked about them before. But the Old Covenant specifically started with Abraham, God making these promises to Abraham, and it was continued through Moses and then through David as well. Those three covenants make up the Old Covenant. But usually in the New Testament, when the Bible talks about the Old Covenant, it's looking specifically at Moses and the law that was there because the Scriptures wanting to contrast as clear as possible for us the difference between law and gospel, the New Covenant being a gospel covenant. But now, today, no one is in the Old Covenant with God. It's obsolete. Not Israel even. Not even Israel in... Um, the nation of Israel. They're not in the Old Covenant anymore either. The Old Covenant, the book of Hebrews says, is obsolete. It has passed away. And so it could be, so for us now, if we're thinking about us, your parents have an idol. It could be that your parents aren't saved. And if that's the case, they won't understand or, or come willingly under the moral law in many aspects. Your priority in that case is to preach the gospel to them so they may receive Christ, die to self, and then live to please him. At that point, they would or they should want to put away their idols. By put away, I mean destroy or, you know, not, not idolize them any longer, depending on what it is. Um, you would destroy it or put it, you know, put it away. Or let's say your parent is a believer and they have some idol. There, that would mean they're in the new covenant then. You'd want to confront them on their sin in the hope that they would repent. And if not, you would, if you were bold enough, now go to your church involved and get the church involved and get the process of church discipline working. And that's the way that God sanctifies people in the church in the new covenant. That's the context for us now. But it was, it's different for Gideon in the old covenant. Gideon's father was in great danger. And Gideon's involvement, even his drastic involvement, was a way of mediating the wrath of God. Notice there's even a sacrifice made here, isn't there? The sin is put away, the idols are destroyed, and then they sacrifice a bull. Why, do, why were there the sacrifices, why did those happen in the Old Testament? To pay for sin. To atone for sins. Did they ever actually atone for sin themselves? They didn't actually atone for sin themselves, but their, the faithfulness of the Israelite to do it was being obedient to God, and God would be gracious to them through that. But the only sacrifice that atoned sin actually was the sacrifice that Christ was going to make in the future from Gideon's standpoint. This act on behalf of Gideon is symbolic of Israel repenting and now returning to God. So remember, there hasn't been any repentance up to this point, but now that's happening. And the reality is that God shouldn't even have needed to command him to do this. They all knew what they were supposed to do, that, th that they weren't supposed to do this sort of thing. But this is how gracious and faithful God is. This is the gospel according to Judges. God is being kind to his people. So again, hopefully that made sense to you guys. You wouldn't have to do something like this to your parents because you guys aren't in the Old Covenant. Your parents aren't in the Old Covenant. It was necessary for Gideon to do this now because the wrath of God was upon them 
And if he hadn't done this, then you know, God could have even extended the, the punishment through the Midianites. So Gideon wasn't violating the fifth commandment because his father was in a specific covenant with God, which he, Gideon's father, knew he never should have constructed these altars while he was in them. Understanding the old covenant and the implications it has for God's people at that time will help you guys with other questions that people have with Christianity. One of the things you could simply say is, when someone asks you something about, well, like, how, are you you're not supposed to wear clothes of mi- mixed fabric? Or, you know, the Old Testament says, you know, the homosexuality is bad, but it also says that you can't wear clothes of mixed fabric, and obviously you're wearing clothes of mixed fabric. Well, all you have to say in a simple way is, well, that was the Old Covenant. And then you go from there. Mixed fabric? Like, um cotton and polyester, like whatever your, your shirt is probably made out of. Yeah. So I want, you to, I want you to notice what God does here as well. He has Gideon make a new altar. And where does he put it? Verse 26, on top of the stronghold. God is rubbing it in. People are going to see this. Right? This isn't a hidden thing. The stones are laid in due order. The chaos, the chaos that Baal introduced is over. God is reigning on his throne. God is not a God of chaos, of confusion. So will Gideon be obedient? He's going to have to clean house and destroy these prominent idols owned by his family and then construct an altar to Yahweh. The people will all know. His family will know. Obedience isn't going to be easy here. And we all know what Gideon does. We read it already. It's verse 27. He takes 10 servants. So apparently Gideon is a little bit more, he actually is kind of a mighty man. Remember when the angel of the Lord called Gideon a mighty man? I mean, I don't have 10 servants. And so Gideon takes 10 servants and he goes and he does what he is asked to do. He is obedient. He did it as the Lord told him. And then in verse 27, it gives us a final insight. He did it by night because he was afraid of his family and the men in town. So instead of doing it by day, He did it by night. Now remember in verse 25, the Lord came to him at night. So did it all happen that night? Or did did that night happen and then he slept on it and then Gideon did it the next evening? We don't know for sure. It kind of seems, it could be either. It kind of seems like it all happened that night. But the point is clear. Gideon was afraid. And so does that taint his obedience? Because Gideon did it the way that he did. The scripture even tells us Gideon was afraid. Does that taint his obedience? Does that somehow translate to disobedience? He didn't, God didn't tell him to do it at a specific time. God didn't tell him to do it at a specific time. And so I don't think it does violate his obedience at all. Uh, commentator Ralph Davis says, or he notes that obedience is essential, heroism is optional. Now, this was a, a big deal for Gideon to do this. And he is right to be afraid, as we'll see in the coming verses. Well, the The text that we have for next week, people are not happy with Gideon for doing this. But the point is this. Obedience isn't always easy. It will sometimes carry with it consequence from the people that we live around and with. Obedience to the Lord will not make you popular with people who are opposed to the Lord and the law in every age. for age, For your age group right now, Obedience to the Lord will not make you popular with people in your age group who do not love the Lord. It's, it's a simple fact. That was true for Gideon. It is true for us now. But even though we may be scared and timid with our obedience, even though we often may fail, we, we will often fail to have perfect obedience, we 
rest in the fact that Christ was perfectly obedient and He is our salvation, salvation, He is our righteousness. But even though we may be scared and timid in our obedience, it is better for us to be obedient than to disobey God. We should fear God more than we fear mankind. Those of us who know God can only understand that because we understand how much greater God is than any other person. So obedience to the Lord is not easy. It's not easy for anyone. It's not easy for me. And especially at first, obedience to the Lord is not easy. Uh, What we do by the grace of God grow and are sanctified and obedience to the Lord becomes easier over time as we put sin to death, but never on this side of eternity is it something that you're just simply able to do in your own strength. It's something that the mature Christian understands he must depend upon the Lord for. And so when God requires of us faithfulness for those of us in Christ, he also supplies the grace and the strength that we need to be faithful. It's never easy because our nature is corrupted and we, also, we often find ourselves giving ourselves over to sin. But it is possible to be faithful, to be obedient to God because God is greater than anything in this world. And God, what God asks of us to do, in this case, the spirit that he also gives to us through faith will supply the, the strength that we need. Remember even our memory verse that we have for this month, Philippians 4, 4.19. And my God will supply your every need according to his riches and in, in glory in Christ Jesus. Right? It's not us that is able to do it. It's Christ through us. Okay? So obedience isn't easy, but doing what God asks is always going to be right. So let's pray. Father in heaven, being honest to you, Lord, is something that we should always be because you know uh, our hearts. You know even the words on our tongue before we even say them. There is nothing hidden from you. You see all. And so... Being honest, we confess that uh, we're not always obedient, that we, we give in to pressures from our peers and our society and our culture. We give in to pressures from our own flesh. And we ask for forgiveness for our, the ways of disobedience that we have. And we pray that you would grant us repentance and that you would in your kindness do that and give to us godly sorrow over the sin in our life. Help us at at the same time to to know that we are accepted in you through Christ and his righteous life alone. So we ask that you would give us grace to be obedient to you. Maybe even if that might mean to be obedient to you for the very first time, even tonight, Lord. We pray that you and your sovereignty would grant it for Christ's glory's sake. And it's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen.